Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Falling Water. We think that we each dream our own dreams, right? But what if someone could walk out of their dream and into yours? What if they could use your dreams against you without you ever knowing? On October 13th, the producers of The Walking Dead and Homeland present Falling Water, a new original drama on USA Network where the battle for your dreams is real and happens while you sleep. Because those who can control dreams can control the world. Falling Water, a new original series, Thursday, October 13th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio with milk pouring out of him, it's Andy Greenwald! Am I real or am I illusion? Happy New Year! Happy Half New Year to you, my friend. Nice of us to be working on a very holy day. Yeah, thanks for coming by. Of course. (laughs) Um, course. Andy, we're here to talk a little bit about Westworld, uh, which premiered last night on the HBO Network. We also have a very special guest today, a little bit later in the pod, Will Sheff from Ockerville River and from... Any given Wednesday theme music fame will be joining us. Uh, but first, let's talk about Westworld. It's been a lot of hype, a lot of build up to this. Yeah. It's sort of the. We talked a little bit about this uh, Thursday on the Rhea, but I kind of wanted to just start the conversation with you again, if that's okay for you and for listeners. Just reboot me with a different robot. Um, what makes one of these big shows stick right now? I think that is a question that every network executive is wondering. And I'm sure the people over in the lovely offices of Santa Monica, HBO Santa Monica mm-hmm. offices, are wondering the same thing. I'm going to start with the negative and move into the positive for Westworld. Okay. In terms of like how I think, because you, you don't make something this expensive and this ambitious without it hoping to stick the way that, say, Game of Thrones is stuck. Right? Yeah, there is, there is no question that the genesis of this project comes from a network saying internally we need to take another big big swing yes. um and, and that is i'm saying that as a value neutral comment but when you have something as game changing as ratings dominant as conversation uh, uh all consuming as game of thrones you don't want that to go away without at least offering another chance to fill it and in terms of the vision of the show uh in terms of the look of the show and in terms of the sets and the production design and the cinematography i found myself for the first time maybe since watching Game of Thrones mm-hmm. saying this this is too big for my television. I wish I was watching this in a theater. I wish I had yes. an IMAX version of this pilot. It's so cool to look at. I want to look at every different part of the frame. I, I watched it in a the theater. Did you? And it was it's gorgeous. I went to HBO um, back in my old life uh, when I lived in the wild, wild east. Yeah, I went to HBO in Midtown. I watched it in their screening room and it is deserving of that. It's yeah. gorgeous. So here's the issue that I'll, we'll start with this issue and then we can kind of move out in a ripple and talk more specifically about the episode itself. The issue is that I don't know that it has a Jon Snow or a Tyrion in so much as just because you make something huge and big and it has a great Bible for the show and it has all these different parts of the world that you want to explore. And I mean, God bless them because they just made a compelling Western and a compelling sci-fi and put them together. And yeah. you're actually in, you know, you're you're really invested in what's going on. But when you talk about what is it that makes Game of Thrones so successful, aside from the fact that it had a built-in fan base and it has the kind of Lord of the Ringsian epic feel to it, there are still 
character types, regardless of whether you think Kit Harrington's amazing or Jon Snow is a corndog or a hero or whatever, character types that people have become accustomed to being like, that's who I need to watch. And yeah. even if you thought it was Ned and it wasn't or whatever, you're like, Jon's arc, Daenerys's arc, these people, people's arcs are identifiable and interesting. And now it's only been one episode of Westworld, but there aren't any of those types of characters right now. Let me say this to anyone listening who, who likes genre entertainment, who is in any way employed making genre entertainment, here's the question that you need to ask yourself as you're making it. What about Han Solo, though? That's what I'm saying. You, what about Solo, though? You need a Han Solo. Yes. Because someone needs to puncture the air to make it a little bit lighter, to let the audience this in, to let them know it's okay to laugh. This show is out for Walton Goggins to be walking around being like, what the shit is going on yeah, here? Yeah, this is fun, you yeah. know, for him. Um... I am. Let me start by saying I'm. I'm on the fence about the show. I think there are things about it that are beautiful and remarkable, and there are things about it that I like less. And we'll we'll get into it. I, I, to go f- macro, to mm-hmm. go as big as possible, which is also what the goal of the show was. I would say, if you look through the development process and the names attached and the talent being attached, it is a no-brainer that that this made it to air. Mm-hmm. It is a no-brainer that it was greenlit, even with the amount of money that, that, that it demanded, right? Because J.J. Um, uh, Abrams is involved, um, the Nolan brothers. This Jonathan Nolan. Uh, yeah. Jonah Lisa Nolan Joy, yeah. and his, uh, his wife, Lisa Joy, uh, created and ran the show, but Christopher Nolan, his brother, was very engaged in the idea and very into the idea. Um, look at the cast. I mean, it looks like uh, it, this is a, these are movie stars, yeah. or at least very respected movie actors. Yeah, James Marsden, like, throwing middle relief exactly it james marsden's a star james marsden <laughs> was the star of anchorman 2 and a toyota commercial that i liked very much and he wasn't he the star didn't you like a cameron diaz no james marsden being on television would be the james marsden show nine times out of ten well 30 rock he was pretty All good right, that's right. but that. your point stands uh evan rachel wood is a tremendous actor jeffrey wright anthony hopkins um you can go down the list and at some point we will uh the ideas in play, the concept, the, the, the big swings that it allows you to take both as a network and a storyteller, sure, of course, and throw in the fact that it's uh, pre-existing IP, which in this case might not really help yeah. it, but for some reason that does get things made. All my Yule Brunner heads. Right. I, I mean, it's not exactly... Keeping the fire stoked for these, these This years. is not exactly the spirit of the original, yeah. but you know the character, you know, you do a lot of character work on the show, and I really appreciate that, but... My favorite character that you do is, you know, is the Hollywood fixer. Right. Where you just sit back and you just ask a question. And for as much as we joke about that character, and we, we joke, we like to laugh. <laughs> I wonder what would have happened if that Hollywood fixer had just wandered in through Valet and Santa Monica and HBO, walked up to the executive suite and said, but why do we care about this? Just remind me, why do we care about this? And part of me thinks, this is not true, but you know, this, this, this shut down, they, they shut down production for a while, which is never a good sign. Um, you know, they said it was to fix the scripts. There was a lot of, um, a lot of uh, you know, bad buzz around the project. I think almost none of it bears out in the final product. It is not, does not seem troubled. It does not seem like massively flawed. No. Um, someone told me anecdotally that one of the reasons they shut it down was because they took this show so seriously, Jonah Nolan and, and Lisa Joy, that they needed to take some time to really nail down what human existence meant in their universe. Like, they think about it on that level. But there's an element of this show that I am bumping up against, which is, I don't really care about if robots can feel. 
Like, I just don't know if that's interesting yeah, uh, to me. Okay, so... It, it has a big question. It has a big concept. It has a big cast. But it is not connecting with me on on the level that would allow me to pass the Turing test and be a human and not a robot. Does that I'm make sense? I'm much more enthusiastic about the show than okay. I think than you are. I think it's... I thought it was really cool. I think it gets better in the second episode, which we won't go into that at all. But I do think that, you know, it's hard to judge... One, I to to criticize myself. It's hard to judge one episode of Westworld against what we know now about Game of Thrones. Yes, and, and I haven't gone back and watched the it, first Game of Thrones episode. In but a also, while. fundamentally, um, well, with Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones was was unique in a billion ways. But one of which was that was the first chapter, and we knew that there were five other books out there, and it yeah. was going someplace. Westworld, for all the things about it that are unique and new and representative of where TV is going, it is profoundly a TV moment that we're in with a show where boy, that's a pilot. It's beautiful. It has a nice symmetry. It just has some poetry to it. It begins beginning, middle, and end. And now it has to be a series. Right. And the second episode does do a lot of interesting things in establishing what the series will be. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's a lot of different ways it can go. There are obviously people, visitors, who are going to come in from outside the park to, to be guests. And they can do all sorts of things with the idea of what these hosts, quote-unquote the robots, do and don't remember and what kind of personalities they have. It's funny that, like, our conception of, like, robotic life is always, like, they're kind of, like, robots, though. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? As soon as you know that Danny Newton or Evan Rachel Wood are robots, you're kind of like, yeah, they're kind of, like, acting like a robot. And I I don't think they're tremendously helped by... Uh, the onslaught of sexual violence visited upon them yeah. or the fact that, like, you know, it wasn't a time of, like, introspective, self-deprecating humor and, like, I mean, in the, in the Wild West or in, in the Nolan Brothers, like, executive suite? Well, just in the, con- no, in the, in the Wild West, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and the saloon town vibe that it has. But, you know, the, the levels of quote-unquote humanity you're going to get from, from a lot of the characters is going to be pretty limited. And I don't want—I hope that that doesn't necessarily limit people's engagement or investment in the show's characters themselves. Um, yeah, and, and, and you, you brought up some people are reacting very strongly to the sexual violence that is baked into the show. Um, of all the things that I needed more of on my television, that's not high on the list. Yeah. I do think that— um, Certainly Lisa Joy in interviews that she's given and in conversations that they've made, the people who are making the show have uh, have had publicly, the idea of the morality of something like Grand Theft Auto weighs very heavily on the show. Mm-hmm. And that informs it. And that's very interesting. I mean, the idea being like what if you just say like, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a decent guy. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a wife and kids and I pay my taxes and I go to work. Um, and then just to unwind, I go into a virtual world on my Xbox and I murder prostitutes. Yeah, right, right. Where did that energy come from? Where does it go? And this is like the natural iteration of that. That's an interesting idea that is relevant so to our So is the idea that this is like the worst possible version of Vegas. This idea of right. like what happens in Westworld stays in Westworld. And, the, you know, the idea that you go off and you can be the true version of yourself that is also like this... The darkest. Why yeah. is it you know are, when you go to do something like this, is the true version of yourself always the darkest version of yourself? Right. And you know, I think a lot of the those are very heady things, and those are very and you can't solve them or even prove your ability to question them in one episode or two episodes. Yeah. What covers a lot of sins, and I don't even mean them sins, covers a lot of these question marks, papers over them in the short term, is the production value, is the set, is the actors. I yeah. mean, when you have a mysterious man in a black hat running around gunning down people it's and it's ed harris i'm like 
dope. Jackson Pollock has a six shooter. Yeah. No, I mean I'm into it because it's him. And I think that what but how long that doesn't go on forever. That doesn't. You have to have a show at some so point. So basically, there's shows are. We also talk shows exist inside of these balloons, right? And almost every show is it's you could pop it if you worked hard enough at it. Some shows yes. are easier to pop than others. Lost, uh, you know, Mad Men. We mean, uh, mean meaning like you can buy. You could just be like, yeah, but dragons though. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you could at any given point, you could just be like, isn't this kind of stupid? You know. And I think that different shows are good are good at defending themselves against that, and some are so good that it doesn't matter. And Westworld needs to choose which one, yeah, and then do it. I, I, and I think one way that they can do that, and one way it can protect itself from getting popped, is this idea of. Um, sort of what 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 the Ed Harris character wants versus what the Anthony Hopkins character, what Robert Ford wants, because and it's very it's interesting. Robert Ford, the person who killed Jesse James, that's what the Anthony Hopkins character is named. I don't know who Jesse James necessarily is in this world. In this world, um, but they're sort of how if you want to keep doing Russian nesting dolls and talk about different layers and different mm-hmm. levels of experience within this theme park essentially Mm -hmm. i think that's the place to go the more it becomes about like ai and when or when are we human and when are we not human the less i'm interested in it i completely completely agree with that and also i just the nolan verse is punishing for two hours for two and a half hours for five years, I mean, you gotta let some light yeah, in. You have to have some different minutes tones. It's not that bad. But first of all, the episodes are gonna be fifty-nine minutes. I mean, yeah. this is HBO, but yeah. it's not so bad. But it's exhausting. It's exhausting if I'm not sure why I care, and they can't. You know, I mean, the, 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 I thought of when you mentioned the thing about bubbles and popping the show. I mean, the reason Stranger Things, which is kind of silly on a hundred levels, never popped for me is because it was so enjoyable. It was pleasurable. Yeah. Now these the very different shows, very different ambition. Yeah. Um, I do have a question about the god Tony Hopkins. Like the the legend, yeah, the master. Oh yeah, of course. Do you think, like, the way that he approaches this role suggests to me that he has been kept like in captivity for a number of years, much like the bear in that movie he made with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> he was in the bear cage. So and he's they done some talking about. I, I just want to say they were, he was in the bear cage, and I don't think they fed him. <laughs> like or they didn't feed him enough. Yeah, to the point that when they let him on set. He devours the set like Hansel and Gretel devour the candy house yeah. in the famous fable. Like, there are no scraps left. And then just in case there were scraps, they put Jeffrey Wright in every scene with no, him. No, 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 no. See, here's the thing is that I don't even think he's the biggest bear on the set there. Oh, yeah? Your man, yeah. Simon Quarterman, British yes. narrative weaver, yeah. who's like, did yes. not get the note that no one else is shouting no. in the entire series. No. And he's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. He's just like this like cockney bard. Who's he's, <laughs> he's on that Winona Ryder. I, I don't like I the woman from Borgen is cool. Jeffrey Wright is always good. You know, like I'm into everybody. But sometimes when you're like. Would this guy really be given this much responsibility? Yeah. This no. asshole walking around being like, "You having a laugh? Your man, Get the, the fuck out of here!" Like, what your, the? Your man, the Dreamweaver, <laughs> in the V-neck sweater, West Ham fan with like a like, yeah. It's always interesting the way writers portray writers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's like, everyone else is pretty like they put they're kind of put together. They're like holding it together. They're doing something that is pretty insane. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't get the memo. You're right, but. But like those are the choices that I'm like, 
you spend three years plus making the show and developing it. And then there are some decisions of this where I'm like, I guess they just let that one fly. Yeah, and you know what? This that's that's pilotitis. Like that can be totally yeah. leveled out. You surround that guy with three other people who are equally amped, or some just have one scene where someone's like, you need to chill out. <laughs> And he yeah. can then chill out, and then you can course correct. I mean, we forget. It's I can't believe how much intensity and uh, scrutiny television shows are under now. Because you just forget, like, oh yeah, it took like a there was that second season of Friday Night Lights. That's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, it took it t- takes shows like a couple episodes to get going. That. Sometimes it's not just that. And we should we should move on to and have, and bring Will into our conversation here. But the other day. Uh, we were watching a. My wife has some like old family videos that her family like. It was a VHS tape like birthdays, and they put on a DVD. So I she don't wanted know to, how this is going to connect to Westworld, but I'm terrified. She, she show it. <laughs> it's a good question. She, and and so they took this VHS tape that had been sitting in the family forever, and they put it on a DVD. And she you know? realized these were not her memories. And you look on the back. Well, partly you look on the back, you know, and like you go to a video store, and they like took stills from every 15 minutes. So you get to like see what the chapters oh, were. Oh yeah, yeah. And the first picture, it's like her and her sister are like three and six and then they're older and they're older and then there's harry hamlin because her family taped law and order over their birthday videos so they turn 11 at a bowling rink and then all of a sudden there's like that dude benny you know who's like the differently abled person in the la law office and he's just like i'm nervous to testify leland and are it's you just like serious? Two episodes of Law and Order. Ikenberry was on there. I mean, if not Law, L.A. L.A. Law. Yeah, that's what I'm Ike, saying. Ikenberry yeah. is up in that. Okay, yeah. Hamlin, Day, Corbin, A. Martinez, all the <laughs> gods of our youth. The reason I bring this up is to say that when we have these conversations about TV, we are definitely doing a Law uh, L.A. Law episode. I hope soon. so. Yeah. I feel like ever since I moved here, I get it. You know, I get it. When we talk about things, the way things used to be or we should remember, like you reached for Friday Night Lights season two because our conversation is really bounded by what TV has become. Sure. Take a minute to watch L.A. Law from 1989. It is the calmest experience you will ever have. These are handsome men and beautiful women and Michael Tucker yeah. in suits. And they're just talking about stuff. And their performances are lovely. <laughs> but they're just talking about the case and he's like, I, I that the that uh, medical company is making me their dummy. Yeah, and they're like, and to relax. be fair, you know what? They knew what it, they were doing, and they knew they had to make twenty-two of them, and nobody ever went off no. too far off menu and was like, Anthony Hopkins and Jeffrey Wright are going to be doing like Brecht, yeah. and then some guy is going to kick in the door with three pints of lager. And be like, anybody <laughs> order a British writer, mate? <laughs> Knees up. That's what I'm saying. I, I just think that. We have a narrative that we've constructed where we are bounding these things with, like, this is the way TV is now and these advances it's making. But much like Robert Ford in his Imaginarium, this is new enough that the amount of power and responsibility and and money that that is at the disposal to make TV is insane. The one thing I will say— So, of course, things are going to be sloppy and crazy. I will say this, though. To use your own— praise of Game of Thrones back at you about praise of, of Westworld. Do you listen to me? No, but you were That's saying so that nice. like the thing about Game of Thrones that people really identify or really mm. latch onto is the fact that every morsel of bread has been placed in on the pan and thrown in the oven in the right way. Like when what, you're like, are, I'm, what, are, what are you cooking? No, like when, you're like when you're like looking at a pub scene in Game of Thrones, the guy in the background has a backstory. Oh, the the, the baker's son has. I thought a back- you were giving me a really weird cooking. I think metaphor. that there is that level of thought put into Westworld, and I think that you will see. Like I think that that has that kind of depth, and I, I'll, I'll we'll we'll keep talking about it. This is just the first our first round. I, I'm just curious if people 
got what they thought they were getting because we didn't even mention this in the re-up, but our man Tate on the boards right now was in on Westworld when he thought it was about space, not just robots, because he thought people were like in suspended Tate animation. Tate just needs to look at like one trailer of the show to know it's not about space. Don't you? First of all, Tate is a beautiful mind. Tate does not have to do anything. <laughs> but but the fact that it's like an amusement park, it's Vegas. Like there wasn't some extra matrixy level to it. I'm curious if people thought. I mean, maybe people just like space more than robots. Maybe also, who knows what's going to happen with this show? Maybe there is a matrixy level to it. We don't understand yet. What if Eikenberry is just on level seven? What if this is just a dream Eikenberry is having in the Culver City's like like skyscraper? I assume that about everything. I assume that about this podcast. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with Will Chef. I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com watch. That's ZipRecruiter.com watch. One more time. You try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the good people at Jack Threads. When was the last time you ordered clothes online and got to try them on before paying for them? Never, right? Well, that's exactly what jackthreads.com does. You can try anything on at home for free, and you only pay for what you keep. Whether it's a big-name brand or the Jack Threads in-house line, you can be sure you are 100% in love with the items you ordered before spending a cent. We're all aware how difficult it can be to find the right pair of shoes or clothes, but Jack Threads has made it simple. Their tryout program is saved me the agony of settling on items I wasn't absolutely happy with. I ordered a couple of different styles that I liked and a few different sizes, and I got to test out everything in the comfort of my own home, all without the salesman staring at me, making me feel rushed or pressured. And there was no guilt in returning products I didn't want. They give you the seven days to decide if it's working for you and supply you with packing tape and prepaid shipping labels. Send things back easily. Go to jackthreads.com and enter promo code BSPN when you submit your tryout for 20% off anything you keep. That's jackthreads.com code BSPN to save 20% on anything you keep. Never buy before you try again. Andy, now we are joined by Ockerville River's Will Chef, a longtime friend of yours. I've always been a longtime fan of his. You guys aren't friends? Yeah, I think we've met like once or twice we've before. We've hung probably. out once or twice. At yeah. Eads? Um, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. I feel like we might have <laughs> hung out at a Spoon concert once. I feel like it's an interesting power dynamic. Like, here's your guest. He's your friend. Yeah. Yeah. I can't vouch for it. We're him. all friends in this podcast. And for some reason, you brought him up. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> I always like bringing friends on podcasts. Um, Will, welcome. Oh, cool. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, we're happy to have you here. You are in the midst, the middle of a. Precisely the middle of a big uh, tour. Of a big tour. Your new yeah. record, Away, is out mm-hmm. now. Yep. And garnering yep. well deserved, excellent reviews. We were talking just briefly before you came on, and we're going to talk about the record. I I think we have some um, conversations to have about the music business in general that sounded really, really good after our fifth beer at the Bowery Ballroom, (laughs) and we're going to try them out on Chris here and see how they go. But um, I have actually I have a quick question because you know Away just came out. Uh 
Uh, on Friday, like I noticed, I just like turned on Spotify and I was like, oh yeah, like the Bony Bear record came out uh-huh. like overnight. Like, how are you? How are you feeling about like surprise records, stuff coming out out of nowhere, secret secret releases that like go into one streaming service or another like did you did did you get tempted by any of that stuff did anybody try to be like hey maybe if you pretended like fake your own death but then like release a record he he did film a video in a casket yeah that's that's kind of like why i was asking i guess it's a i i think of it as sort of a continuation of this just general desperation uh on the part of the music business to like do something to gin up sales or to get some attention and get some eyes. Like, it's not going to work forever. Like, they're not going to be doing surprise releases in, like, 20 years still. Sure. Like, ooh, surprise, yeah, ta-da! Right. And also, it's kind of funny because it's the kind of thing where, like, you know, if a band like Proto Martyr or something did a surprise record sure. drop, it would be like, oh, wait, what happened now? Right. You know what I mean? Like, For, you for, for most bands, every release is a surprise <laughs> yeah. to America. Yeah. 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 Some people are I'm like, always surprised I get to make another record, so I get a surprise release every few years. That's right. Let's think about the scale of these things, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I, it's cool. It's exciting. I think, it, But I think that it's really just a way to you know get everybody to be the the other thing I find really funny and I saw it especially with the Frank Ocean record is that like when something um drops like out of nowhere suddenly everybody's like falling all over themselves to have the first opinion about yeah, it right and your first opinion is like almost never your best opinion I mean like everybody listening I'm sure has experienced the thing of like you hear a record for the first time and you're like this kind of sucks I hate it and then you listen three more times and you're like oh my god how did I live my life without this sometimes those are the best records well it's also especially with like there's like a little bit of magic going on there right because like Frank Ocean dropped out of nowhere after everybody yeah. waiting for it for two years so i think in our in people's heads they had a lot of like preconceived notions about what they were expecting and yeah that led to a lot of like i mean there was like generally a pretty pretty positive or it reaction. can happen the opposite way though where you're like oh my god this is brilliant genius stunning a stunning masterwork that and i stopped you listening listen to, to on it. tuesday yeah. yeah you listen to it a couple more times and you're like eh, it's just like a once I know the tricks that it's doing, I'm a little, like, a little over it. You know? Or if it sounds, I mean, this has been my reaction to the Frank Ocean record, which is all I heard in it was the potential of what it could be and just almost bumping up against what I wanted it to be. Yeah. I had dreams of this being this masterpiece. Yeah. We all wanted it to be a masterpiece. Yeah. And there are many nice things on it, many nice moments on it. But See, I I'm the flip of that. I, cause I, like, I, I found it emptier the longer time. I was like, I'm, I've, I've, while very much appreciative of his talent, like was not the biggest Channel Orange fan, but I think Blonde is like absolutely What's weird is that Channel Orange, I loved when it came out. And I, for me, it's aged very poorly. Okay. There's, there's yeah. certain like lyrics that I hear now. And I'm like, uh, like Forrest Gump, especially. And then the, like the... Uh, Indian girl sleeps in the shade of the temple, whatever that whatever that song is. Um, those those songs like really bum me out now, like yeah. from a lyrical standpoint. But I can't speak on Bond because I've actually only heard one oh, man, song. Oh man, I've I've like did, did we just surpri- want it to be did awesome. we surprise you? Did you know that, that album came out? Did <laughs> no. you just blow your mind? I mean, <laughs> my yeah, my like reaction time must be really <laughs> slow. A little slow. <laughs> Check the reflexes. Um, let's do okay. So, but the thing that. Your Away coming out was not a surprise, but the nature... Yes. I'm going to do a segue. Krista usually does. That. The nature of the record in many ways was a surprise. So we mm-hmm. can take you back a little bit. Um, the last Ockerville River record, Silver Gymnasium, yeah. it's a beautiful record, Thank and you. one that was very personal. I mean, they're all personal to you, but yes. this one in many ways was inspired by your childhood and your town where you grew up. Yes. And you yes. spent an enormous amount of time making a beautiful film that went along mm-hmm. with it, Down mm-hmm. Down the Deep River. Yeah. It, what was interesting to me most is that you know you, you your career arc up to that point 
there are certain beats that are familiar to people who are fans of careers and that you are building at a certain level and mm-hmm. get, you know, getting a national fan base. Fans of careers. <laughs> I love careers. I'm a fan of careers. I love careers. <laughs> but I think it's fascinating to watch and especially, and I'm curious. I'm big on career message boards. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, that's, I've never heard it put that way, but that's really cool. I like that. Well, thank you. See, that's why he's my yeah. friend. Yeah. He, he, liked, <laughs> he liked what I said. I'm not busting your balls. Um, but... You know, you, you put all this time and a lot of effort into Silver Gymnasium and, and the film. And then after that experience, I remember when we would talk, you seemed a little bit disillusioned about the band, about making music, yes. and about what a music career even meant at this point. Is that yeah. fair to say? I was going through a lot of um, questioning everything. Um, it was personal. Uh, it had to do with... Um, there was professional aspects to it. There were things about the way I was living my life that weren't really helpful anymore. There were things about the way I was conducting my career that weren't really helpful anymore. There were things about the world changing around me that were frightening to me. And uh, I was sort of like in desperate need of a reset around, you know, and I look back on it now and I think the Silver Gymnasium was kind of like, it was sort of like me stepping in it was kind of like me stepping in the right direction, but it was also kind of like me looking back on um, parts of my life and getting ready to sort of like say goodbye. You know, like it was, I don't know. It was like I was ready to live in the present. And I think that's why the Silver Gymnasium is so fixated on the past. I was like, let's just get really um, gorge ourselves on the past and on nostalgia so like I can get past it and, and live in the present. You know, Andy mentioned something about like you know the with like the national fan base and like the traditional arc of what you were doing, and I I think that like for a lot of people probably our age that you get to a point when you're doing when your livelihood is tied up with the thing that you're ostensibly most passionate about in your mm-hmm. life like there's that weird fork in the road where you're like do I continue to like just make a living off of this mm-hmm. and does how does that change my relationship to like my traditional ideas of what this art means to my persona or my life or like what yeah. it gives me back was was there stuff like that going on with that turning point for you like was there just like did, was it hurting yeah. too much almost like well you know this is this brings up something that i've been thinking about a lot recently because um i've been trying to understand there's this thing about the marketplace for for art that is like I am kind of like a kid in this way. Like, there's certain lessons about the world that I just refuse to understand. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. don't get. Um, but one of the things is that there's this sort of a record comes out, you know, whether it's our record or, or, or Blonde or like whatever record it is. And um, everybody kind of like weighs in. And they what they're really trying to do is describe it somewhere along a continuum of good and bad. Sure. But like, there's something more to a record than good and bad. Right. I mean, it's just like how you can enjoy. We built this city like way more than Stockhausen. <laughs> like Stockhausen is obviously better. Sure. We built this city is obviously worse. And yet there's more at play than like good and bad. And one of the things that I find really fascinating about, especially me, because I'm, I've been the only constant with my band, is that on some level, uh, albums have a soul. Like they're halfway between a thing that is uh, inanimate and dead and a thing that is alive and conscious. It's not like they really are, but they have some of the qualities of that because yeah. you pour your soul into them. And it's a ve- really, really exposing thing and a, a real leap of faith to like pour your soul um, into this thing and try to make it a, a semi living entity. And then it goes out into the world and everybody 
either buys it or doesn't buy it or steals it or ranks it or yeah, gives like yeah. a number value to your, yeah. your soul on some level and you're sort of encouraged to sell it and you're, you have to make up a story about it and then you have to kind of stick to that narrative in order to sell this your soul kind of um, and the whole process I know it might sound like a little naive or spoiled but it's something that uh, I never get over how bruising that experience yeah. can be I, can, I can't even imagine you know this yeah. sort of thing of like here's my soul like give it a number value <laughs> I guess that's probably why like you know I was just I was because his new record came out last month and I'm such a big fan of Nick Cave so I was yeah. watching the, docu- the the sort of documentary that he made a couple years ago when Kiss the Skyway came out or Push the Skyway and he's so adamant about it being a craft he's so adamant about like everything you think about like it's so mournful and Nick Cave and it's you know like this like deep gospel goth music and he's like I get up every day and I write a song and I only get better if I keep doing that and that's the only way I stay sane like and it's, yeah. Like, yeah it's like, like, like that. it's like it's like and, and he just chops wood every day and it, you know that must be like almost like a, a coping mechanism for the, for the exactly the kind of judgment well, you have to run the things through. you can control and things you can't control yeah but art is very my, difficult to control my whole thing now is just this understanding that um I, it's an understanding, but I don't know what it means or how to explain it better than this. But, like, art exists somehow, like, good or bad, those are not, like, useful ways to think about art because art yeah. operates on you in a different way. we got to rethink this whole podcast now. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. We, we, we all know I just want to apologize to like. Christopher Nolan, yeah, uh, to, to Anthony not, Hopkins. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it is helpful to think about and talk about, and you need some kind of objective, uh, or at least maybe not objective, but like agreed upon by a large percentage of a certain group of people measuring system. But everybody knows the experience of like feeling pleasure from something that is, strictly speaking, bad, being bored by something that is strictly speaking good, um, even enjoying the bad qualities of something—it's—it's—it it acts. Art acts on like our emotions and, and our serotonin and, and oxytocin and dopamine and all of these things that like exist. At, and there's something about art. Like I remember when I was growing up, my favorite artists seemed like parent figures to me. You know, they were dead. Um, but I knew what they looked like and I knew what they, what their, I'd read their letters and I'd read their books and I felt like painfully so much like they were guiding me, like, the, like there was a path who, they were who, laying Who out. are you thinking of when you say that? Uh, well, like Henry Miller was a real big one for me. Um, His Dylan, early records are great. Yeah, Dylan Thomas was a big one for me. Uh, Groucho Marx, for some reason, the Marx Brothers. I, um, I, you know when you're a kid and you don't know, you're not snobby in a way when you're a kid. Like, you don't go, oh, this is black and white. I'm not going to watch it. Like, we only had a, two TV channels. So, like, I remember PBS was one of them. And I remember Marx Brothers movies coming on and being like, it's like, you know, mainlining everything, like, from Alan Alda and MASH to, like, Bugs Bunny. Like, Groucho Marx is, like, the pure, uncut version of that. Do you think you're, you really only had two channels? Or do your parents, like, fix the TV and they're <laughs> no, like, sorry, Will, it's really only PBS? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I Or static. We, yeah. Well, we did. We um, we had ABC, which kind of came in and out. It was like every now and then we'd have it a little bit more than others. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that exists far beyond the sense of like whether or not something is good or bad. Well, the other thing that's that's difficult is that, and and we feel this way. I think Chris and I both feel this way. And one of the reasons why we're we're grateful to have mostly moved past music writing or mm-hmm. being part of that narrative is that it's really narrative driven. I mean, you're, you you with a TV show, it's 
less intimate and subjective and personal first of all people don't take episode six of game of thrones home with them and they're like i don't want anyone else to watch this episode because this yeah. episode speaks to me people are excited <laughs> that person that's very to talk about the only person who had that right why do you think that so, is well I, I mean in general my different and i want to come back to the question but like in general one of the reasons why i was so much happier when i switched from writing about music to writing about tv was because tv was much more uh, enthusiastic and um, communal yeah. and just excited yeah. you know and I feel I really think it comes from the way that we interact with it because music is so deeply personal the things yeah. you know I've, I've I think I've said this before but when I when I was at spin and Chris was writing for spin too the 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 I would get terrible comments when I would not write about someone's favorite band you uh -huh. know but the comments would be 10 times worse when I did write about someone's favorite band because yeah. how dare I share it or publicize it or get it wrong yeah. or whatever. There just was, there was a desire to take the ball and go home and enjoy the ball. You know? Yeah. Um, whereas the TV, it's just people are, people are psyched and they want to talk about it and share with it together. And I think that the intimate relationship, though, between the two mediums is very different. I mean, the, 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 yes. the kind of joy and sustenance that you can get from music, I don't know if you can get from TV. But it's a, it's a very different certainly it's a very different thing to be covering it yeah. and um that's fascinating i never so, thought about that it's and so really for us for tv i think um you know you get a lot of chances like we just started we were we started the show talking about westworld and the one episode has aired there may be 90 episodes before we're done so we get another chance to think about it and contextualize yeah. it a record um is the mark in the career where people mm. get to weigh in and, and, and say something about it which is sort of a long-winded way to come all the way back to the fact that it does seem like with away your personal uh, muse weirdly lined up with a digestible narrative because <laughs> which wasn't canny you know it wasn't yeah, like something yeah, you did on purpose yeah, no. but it was but you know you, you have a whole new band uh -huh. um, you're basically starting over yeah. the first That's track true. that you released is Ockerville River R.I.P. Yeah. Um, and you were in a casket Yes. And what's funny is that as soon as I heard the record, and the record might be your best record. I mean, it's a I beautiful, it yeah. personal, very exciting, very different record. I knew regardless. I don't even mean to cast dispersions at the fine people who work there, but I knew Pitchfork would be like, <clears throat> okay, <laughs> this is getting a good review because I can wrap my arms around it. I can explain mm. what this is immediately. And really, you know, breakup albums, reformation albums, going up on drugs or down off drugs like yeah. other than those four things how do you grab hold of the narrative again and that's kind of how it worked so understanding that i don't think you did this with any like machiavellian plan yeah what is it like to have to, to basically steered into those waters with this record well um i don't know it was it's personal to me you know what i mean because i really was feeling like I was trying really hard. Like I was trying really hard to like keep afloat and like make enough money to keep my apartment and like, you know what I mean? Like um, just like keep having a career and, and somehow seem relevant and all of these things, right? And then I just, uh, and, and keep going in the same pattern. And I just started to realize that I, I just wanted to make a new kind of art, like a, like a, something that was like better, something that was like deeper and, and um, that I could like feel very proud of. And, and I also, a big part of that was realizing that it wasn't about outside affirmation. Like it really was, this record is like the first record that I ever made, ever made, that I wasn't thinking about what people would think about it. 
You know, like I was just really trying to make the most beautiful thing that I would want to listen to, you know. Um, and how hard was that? Like, did it you, was easy. It was easy. <laughs> yeah, it was easy. Yeah, it was easy. I mean, I can't explain it. I guess because I was, uh, I had, I, I gave up. Like, I gave up uh, care, like, worrying about what um, the popularity contest aspect of things. And once I gave up on that, I was, like, very, like, sad and freaked out, but, like, I was free. And so, like, I also, you know, not to act like I was a super brave guy, I also wasn't necessarily thinking of it as something I was going to release. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So that was, like, part of what gave me maybe that bravery or something. Mm-hmm. But once I had gone along down the path far enough and I was like, this is beautiful and I like it and I'm going to release it, then the record started protecting me somehow. You know, like, um, it was like, no, like, I believe in you, Will. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. your record here. Here's your record speaking. Like, we're going to keep going in this path. Um, so, but but now, of course, it is out in the world, right? And so I do need a, a good review from such and such a person. And I do need to do a podcast and have people know about me and, and all of this That's stuff. That's a drag, by the way. Yeah, Sorry. No, I know. But I'm saying, like, um, in this weird way, uh, praise is, like, scarier than uh, criticism. Because I'm always expecting to get criticized. And I just think, oh, well, screw them. Like, I know that I'm right. You know what I mean? Or I know that maybe not that I'm right, but that I'm right about how I feel. Mm-hmm. But when I, if I get praised, I think, well, I want to give them more of the thing that they praised me for because I'm a, p- a people-pleasing person. You know what like I mean? In an early early years of a band, like, it really does feel more, it's collective. The audience is there with you. You're on the same page. You have, the, you know, the 10 songs that you love and they love them too. And yeah. You're experiencing this together. You're on the way up together. But the longer a band goes on, the more it becomes a negotiation yeah. with mm-hmm. what we want from each other. Yeah. And, and what brought us here to this room today with this weird um, mise-en-scene where we're up on stage and the lights are here and you're there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they both, and everyone has to have their, own, you know, has it's to like f- we'll listen to "Call Yourself Renee" if you play us, unless it's kicks. Right, well, right. It's, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah. But it's also everyone there like, is in a life. You, we laugh, but we're like five five years away from like on demand concerts like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we're five years away from somebody being like, if the Rolling Stones are still alive and you pay X amount of dollars, like you can design the set list or something. You know, oh like, my god! Yeah. No, I'm just I like I I wouldn't be surprised. You know. I would I would pay for that as a, as a consumer. <laughs> yeah. That sounds pretty good but to that's, me. But this that that fan service aspect is, is a fascinating. That's that's this thing that's like completely permeated um, uh, the world. And in a way, there's something really beautiful about it. Like in the way that when you're watching a cover band or a wedding band play, it's not about the cult of personality yeah. with like the star. You're not like. I wonder if the star is going to give a confrontational it's just the interview. Shout next. Is a good song. It's just a celebration yeah. of something that everyone loves. Yeah, but then the other side of it is that you end up with this like completely fan pleasing, uh, airless like here's just something to play air guitar to art. You know what I mean? Well, the, this brings us to something that I, I I know we wanted to bring up, which was um, in New York uh, a month or so ago, back mm. when I still lived there. We went to see. Belly, the yeah. band from the '90s that we both love, and all three of us actually are big, I, I big, 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 big yeah. fans yeah, of absolutely. Belly's not enough appreciated second album, yes. uh, King. And one of the things that was most interesting about that night was to see this band who had had um, an out of the blue hit, um, their first record, which was now twenty plus years ago. Yeah. 
put out the second record with all this hype and like they're gonna make a rock album and they went to the yeah, Bahamas it was a phenomenon to make it. that was happening right so there's like a bunch of alternative rock bands who had gotten signed to major labels or had already been on a major label but it had like kind of like a, a smallish hit mm-hmm. and then it was like this idea of going for it I was actually thinking yeah. about Soundgarden because Soundgarden's featured in Black Hole Sun, the piano version of it, is played during Westworld. And I remember still when Super Unknown came out. Yeah. And they were on the cover of Spin. The cover line was Hammer of the Gods. And it was just like Soundgarden's fucking going for it. Like Soundgarden. It's this idea of going for it. Yeah. Soundgarden like cleaned up their sound. And there's hooks. And the drums are like. And there's a ballad. Volcanoes going off. And there's a ballad. Yeah. And like this idea that you could go for it back then and, and actually maybe become. Superstars. And the thing that was really freeing about seeing this concert a month or two ago is that all that context had melted away. Yes. This album that had been a failure yeah. commercially, mm-hmm. that had broken up the band. Much far superior record. I, I mean, I like Star a lot, but King is like a classic record. I completely agree. Yeah. And when we got when we were all back together, all of us in this in the Bowery Ballroom, the band seemed to be enjoying it. And yeah. it was stripped free and, and the the fans were enjoying it. And it was finally in this this sounds ridiculous because it, it shouldn't take twenty years to do this, but it felt very pure. Yeah. And maybe it was pure because all those stakes were gone. Yes. But maybe so. It yeah, was kind of interesting to experience having stepped out of the narrative and mm-hmm. how much that narrative defined it. Is that a fair encapsulation of what we talked about after our seventh Stella? Yeah, well, I was also talking about how, and I'm really curious about this with Belly in particular. They made this record, um, Star, which was like basically demos. Tanya had told me this, that it was basically demos. And if you listen to it, it's like really, really long and it's kind of inconsistent. It's really good, but it's, um, it, it sounds like a whole ton of demos. And then they made this record, King, which is like wall to wall hooks and hits and like beautiful songwriting and catchy melodies and really emotional you know it's all very present and everything and it just sank without a trace and I don't know what happened I mean it was like the same people who like gobbled up Star took a pass on King for no particular reason Mm -hmm. and that's the funniest thing to me is like how tides shift in really Mm -hmm. subtle ways you know you see it like happen with uh, i you know a good example for me right now is like not that he's not popular but like when you think about how every single word out of louis ck's mouth was a whole think piece like three years ago mm-hmm. and now he's just returned to the realm of like just another person doing work you can tune in or tune out mm-hmm. there's like people who become like the total zeitgeist and everybody wants to talk about it you know nobody can say enough things about like stranger things or whatever or whatever the thing is that's the thing and then we move on and we're like oh we decided we don't like that now and um i gotta feel like on the side of belly uh you know i think the thing i'd mentioned to you was like hollow notes or like mm-hmm. bands from the 80s like hollow notes or like guns and roses who were sort of like um the kings of the world, literally, like, really the kings of the world. And then, like, overnight grunge happens, and suddenly they seem like dinosaurs. And there's no way that they can get in. There's no way that Hall & Oates are, like, allowed into the 90s. Mm-hmm. But the experience of being, like, John Oates was probably just the same as ever. It yeah. was like, yeah, yeah, I don't know, I can take my Darryl kid to Hall, school. Daryl like, Hall, lives in Buffalo. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, plays probably, like, 150 shows a year and gets really well compensated for yeah. it. But that's his life now. I just feel like in, like, 1989. I can't imagine what that It's like be being like. at a party and everybody's so happy to see you. And then you, like, go well, you, into the kitchen the and get a beer. A second, yeah. You come back and nobody's talking to you anymore. 
then you just are like not yeah. welcome at the party. And it's kind of hard to understate what Nirvana must have been like for those guys. Yeah, yeah. It that was just, like, I mean, that just must have been like, I don't, like, what are you talking about? We're all speaking a completely different language now today. Like, I, I everything I knew is now useless. Like, yeah. I, I can't, there, there's only been one or two or three moments like that in my life where I think there's been a cultural shift like that. The, the one of the it's interesting to think about the one that I think was pretty manufactured, although it seemed to work a little bit, which was coming out of the '90s when the rap rock thing was ascendant, and everyone was like, "I guess this is a thing." And, yeah. And, and you know, we were at Spin, and people were like holding their noses and putting Limp Bizkit on the cover, and then as soon as the Strokes formed, literally, people talk about the mainstream media. Yeah, that's, that's the true. entire media cultural whatever it was at that time before the web like, completely launched they jackets. were like yeah. we gotta do this <laughs> yeah, like, right. I know that they really aren't that popular and they only have one album like we're yeah. being honest yeah. here yeah. but we need to kill this thing and make this thing the other thing yeah. and we need to enact a cultural shift that makes the other thing look like clowns and to be yeah. fair like those th- I, I still do think that the Strokes and the White Stripes and the Yeah Yeahs were like warranted that kind of it was attention great. and, and yeah. it was great that there was yeah. a storyline that they were all together and you could it was a narrative that you mm-hmm. could get behind it wasn't in a vacuum but in the same way that like like the dudes in, I feel like the dudes in Warrant, they were like, in Cinderella, like, we're just having fun, man. Like, this is rock and roll. It's fun. We like, we like Kiss and we like dancing around and we got to marry models and we're yeah. doing drugs. Wait, what? Like, then yeah. we can't do this anymore? But right. you must have felt like there's something, um, we, we always kind of, the pendulum always seems to swing back and forth in music between like actually trying to offer substance and speak to people and strip away the bullshit. Um, which is something people crave, and then it becomes a little bit too puritanical, finger-waving, this mm-hmm. music is good for you, eat your vegetables, and so fun comes in, mm-hmm. and then fun becomes the rule of the day, and everybody else seems boring, and then fun starts to get decadent and empty, and everyone's getting a hangover from fun. So then the, the good-for-you stuff comes So back. this is the one major difference that I think is happening, and I think it actually has a lot to do with... Sometimes, like, the icky feeling we have about, like, how is it that we're, like, ranking and rating and, like, ordering even, like, these small, basically, like, bands in their infancy, like, we're already over-contextualizing them is Mm. because, like, the era that we're talking about, there was literally, like, two or three avenues to any kind of mainstream press exposure or like that you yeah. basically had to be on MTV being Rolling Stone being Spin like yeah. there was like only a couple of different roads to exposure or, or radio just you yeah. don't even need it like EDM does not need our yeah our, our like acknowledgement it's like a thriving business there's a, it's a thriving subculture it has its own media it has its own live venues but isn't there's, that a continuation of something that's been happening even since the 60s absolutely, like it's but sort it's of like the dead or far something. more popular than like we would if you just looked at like what say like music was written about on five or six sites like Vulture and Rolling Stone or like Pitchfork or whatever you wouldn't think that Zed was like really popular yeah but he's probably way more popular than any band we have ever talked about on this podcast do you know what I mean like in terms of just like sheer number of people who are engaging with this stuff so I just think it's like it's weird it's like there used to be such a weird cheap thrill of yeah. like oh I just discovered Superchunk yeah. Like no one else knows about this. Not that I'm not sharing it, but that it was literally just like this, sh- this small group of people mm-hmm. who would talk about like these bands. And now it's like, no, like by the time Superchunk would have gotten to their third record, they already would have had like a long form feature written about them somewhere. There's tons of lists about where you should start. What are their five best records? Have they fallen off? Have they gotten, you know, like I, I think, I mean, that's, it's, it's not like an overarching theory of, of everything, but I do think it's why that happens now. 
I'm thinking about Zed. <laughs> I'm thinking about doing a hierarchy of Zed. Well, what's so funny to me in the music business is that um, when I was coming up in the early 2000s, the, um, the, the indie world hadn't really crumbled very much because of um, illegal downloading. Mm -hmm. It was still... The hierarchy of the way that indie labels worked in the late 80s was like still working yeah. pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And if you had a 50-50 handshake split deal like punk rock style with your label, like the touch and you didn't deal. sell yeah, that much right. and you piled in the van, you could make like a living income. You know, it was like a really good thing. And then it started to hit the indies. And the indies were like the, the all the impacts of illegal downloads and, and then streaming. And the indies were like, had way less cushion and way less preparation for it. And now... Every time I put out a record, the landscape is different. They they like they'd be like, oh, it's all about the week of release, and then two years later they're like, well, the week of release doesn't really matter that much. It's all about this. It's all, you know, it's like they every the industry looks different every two, like completely different that every must two be so years, maddening. and we don't know like where any of it's going, um, and that aspect of it is, um, and then I you know I'm also really fascinated with. Um, this concept of like relevancy too, because it seems like that is the single driver of everything. And mm -hmm. once we decide that something is relevant, like you know what I'm talking about when you see like a, um, a feature on somebody who just had an album that came out or a show or a movie or whatever it is. And you can't really tell from the tone of the piece whether they actually think it's good or not. There's this <laughs> sort of a grudging, like I guess I have to write about this. Right. And I'm sort of like writing about the what it me what it means as opposed to like <laughs> I've written those pieces yeah, it, discussing it, whether it's actually good or not yeah, yeah right um, and that aspect of it I, I you know when you're talking about the Strokes that's an interesting like the Strokes taking over from Slipknot that's such a fascinating thing because it was like probably nobody at Spin liked Slipknot no. so like why are they writing about it you the, know I, the, the, the late I mean the, the weird thing about Spin in particular although I think it's emblematic of, of the industry as a whole was that its greatest success came from something completely unsustainable and fluky, which mm -hmm. was there was this magic five, six-year period where the artists they really wanted to write about and really liked could be put on the cover of magazines and sell. I mean, PJ Harvey was on the cover of Spin. I mean, yeah. the 90s were super weird <laughs> yeah. for that. Uh, and then coming out of that, the circulation levels were such and the subscriber base was such that you needed to maintain those numbers and no one had any idea what was going on. Yeah. They knew that they couldn't put like Backstreet Boys on the cover yeah. in 97 or 98. But so there was this period where, you know, and to his credit, Alan Light was the editor in chief then. He, he tried, you know, because yeah. he, he wasn't sure. So he put Pink on the cover. Yeah. How'd that do? Okay, well, we'll put um, Papa Roach on the cover. Like, I, we, who is a cover artist? Yeah. Um, put Outcast on the cover. You know, there were some interesting things that slipped through. But. The, the hunger for the strokes to exist and to be good looking to the yeah. point where like did they need to have an issue of spin where there were five different covers one for each stroke yeah probably didn't but internally in that office that was like blowing off some serious psychological steam to yeah. be able to do that but two years later it's like you know I, I, I love Death Cab for Cutie like should they be on the cover of, like, what does that even mean anymore yeah. because the mainstream was such so broken up that who knows what it was anymore that moment was gone but you know it's funny because you're talking about how that's such a crazy thing but um, in the 60s and 70s I would say probably the majority of the time the artists on Rolling, the cover of Rolling Stone were people that we still look back fondly on their work. They're considered classic yes. artists. Probably most of the people at the publication really thought they were good. I agree. And something about the way that radio tightened up and the way that the record business tightened up in the early 80s into the late early 90s 
suddenly there was all this crap. You know, there was sort of like, not, all, not that it was all crap, but there was like a lot, a much higher crap quotient. And we live in this weird time. I feel like um, the Kelofasane uh, uh, rockist piece was, is what broke Times, all like this open. Yeah, yeah, where he suddenly was like, you know, there's something, you can be intelligent, like pop music and poptimism and all that. And now we live in this weird time where um, that's the justification for writing about like big popular music that's not even really that good and, and spending, you know, 99% of, is, of writing is writing about that. And then mm -hmm. some really worthy artist like His Golden Messenger or something gets like to feast on the like percentage of a percentage. But then there's also, re there are really great, um, there is like Frank Ocean or Beyonce or like Rihanna or... Um, Bonavere, or like people doing like really yeah. chewy, heady, you know, meaningful work that everybody's looking at too. So it's a weird like hybrid time all of a sudden, I feel like. To, to flip it, well, two things. One, I think that, um, you know, I, you were talking about the like the no fun police. Yeah. Like spin sort of boxed itself into that corner oppositionally because like in the 80s, Rolling Stone could put Janet Jackson on the cover and it's part of a continuum of the larger scheme of pop music and this is why we do what we do. Spin's whole thing was like, we don't put Janet Jackson on the cover. Yeah. So when then you don't have rock anymore, like who do you put on the cover? Right. Yeah. But to, to your other point, um, you know, I, I think that music is generally just very precious because in TV, like we cover TV, we've never said the words Big Bang Theory on this show. You know, yeah. it's the most popular show on TV. It's fine. It services what it is. It is a, you know, it is a, in many ways, the multi-cam sitcom is like the pop song of television. It hits yeah. its beats. It hits its pleasure zones. But we can have this thriving conversation about stuff that is essentially well, let pretty, me add, pretty like, niche, Andy right? and I have yeah. spent most of the last five years on one or two coasts. I mean, you just, you're in the middle of a tour when you're out and like other parts of America are people who are like, what's your relevance, bro? Like, I mean, like, the, like, the, actually, you're right. That's, that, that is really a kind of a coastal conversation. Well, just, I, I mean, I think it's an internet. Like if we like cruise a, into Salt Lake city, and yeah. the audience is like liking the show and they're not really thinking about like what are, how relevant, what you mean in 2016. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I do feel like that's what, um, but there is like this secret narrative that's underneath Twitter mm -hmm. and that's underneath, um, websites that write about music or that write about TV is like it's all this kind of like Kelly Blue Book value thing of yes. this like relevance and it's not really about like goodness you know and but, that's fascinating to me but it's also I'm wondering what you think about this I think that one of the problems in music and for me and maybe for Chris too this is one of the advantages is that to write about music especially in the 90s coming out of college you, we didn't need to know anything about music, like how mm -hmm. it was made or even like what producers did. We just had to have strong opinions and a lot of adjectives. Yeah. You know, that's really fun about it. Um, TV, one of the reasons why I enjoy writing about it, and I think the conversation is in some ways healthier, is because there isn't this third rail. Like we can talk about production and the business behind it and the decisions. And for some reason, maybe because TV's always been compromised and dirty yeah. with ads every few minutes, it doesn't feel so um, unholy to do that. Whereas in music, there's yeah. always this thing where it's it's magic and pure. And, you know, for example, Billboard ran a cover story a few weeks ago on Chainsmokers, who uh -huh. are the most popular artists in the country yeah. at the moment. I think this article is fascinating. I think the Chainsmokers are fucking fascinating. Yeah. Like, they are basically, like, frat boy chemists who know mm. exactly how to dose you with exactly what you want to hear in that moment and what they should be playing in these large moments when the beat drops. They're scientists, and I think that's a kind of genius to it. Yeah. Whether it's good genius or evil genius, unclear. Yeah. But to have that conversation involves a certain acceptance of commerce and forethought yes. and clinical planning, which has generally been anathema from a musical conversation. 
Yeah, that's why when I it, when I bring up the thing where I was like, you know, a record has a soul, and and I'm putting my soul into this, and then people are judging my soul, mm -hmm. and and I prefaced all that by saying I'm like this little kid who doesn't get it. <laughs> that's exactly what it is, because yeah. it's like. I bring my soul to the soul market and I put it on my table with a little sign and then I look over and I'm like, the chain smokers are selling a sports car, not a soul. And everyone's like, well, obviously, like, that's a really flashy sports car. I'm going to drive away in one of those, you yeah. know? Like, forget that, like, bespoke little, like, single soul that that dude's got in the jar. You know what I mean? Um, but I can never get it through my head. I, I'm like, I, I'm this, like, really weird, uh, like, idealist. And... Uh, yeah, it's it's, but I guess TV because everybody um, understands that TV is like a giant clanking mechanism. You know, yeah, what and I mean? it's collaborative and it's you know trying to make the least worst mistake and they're just getting it on the air. It's not. Yeah, it's not it's not soul harvesting in the same way, even though it certainly can be. Yeah, but the dominant like we I think we do all think of this idea that like the best records are the perfectly pure. Uh, uh, you know, sh shout of the soul, basically coming. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what people want from music. Is like you're, you really come to it when you need it. You mm -hmm. know, like, um, and and when I say that, like, for example, uh, I was uh, on a plane that was like super, super, super turbulent recently. And I don't get scared on planes, but this plane was so scary. That, I do. I just yeah. jump in there to be your avatar. Yeah. <laughs> this was very scary. And I put this song on, and I don't actually remember what it was, but um, I felt it really helped me. And I felt so grateful that this song was there. Was it by the Chainsmokers? Yes. <laughs> um, but then... Uh, you know, I also could be like, oh, I'm going out to meet some friends at a bar. I'm really excited. I'm going to drink some cocktails. Like, I might just put on, like, a Phil Collins song or something mm -hmm. and be like, yeah, I love this song. It's great. I'm really having a good time. I'm just kind of, like, laughing with the song a little bit. Um, but you're always, like, coming to music when you need it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like there is this kind of relationship with a soul somehow, um, whereas TV you know you can just put it on to, to zone out you know like last yeah. night I literally I was just many, like, many people yeah. do <laughs> I haven't watched TV this whole tour so I like you know smoked some weed out of a coke can and went up to the um, the bedroom of the Airbnb that uh, we're staying in and watched all of the Atlanta episodes that are out and it was like great I just was like able to simultaneously shut off most of my brain and body and plug in like another part of my brain mm -hmm. and then go to sleep and it was really great you know so we should let you go in a second and we should also say we're recording this on monday we're here in los angeles you're playing the teragram ballroom here in los angeles tomorrow That's tuesday right. yes um this is any other shows that you want to hype this week for the cities let them know you're coming well yeah we're going to be uh, the next day we're going to be in san francisco and god i wish i had a brain that would like tell me in my mind Are the you, dates. you keep going north from there yeah so well, then there you go Portland, if you're north of san Seattle, francisco look out yeah. for them Salt Lake City, and Chicago. Finally, for all this, we had a heavy talk about like how hard music is and the, and the and <laughs> yeah. naive soul reaving that you are committed uh, yeah. to doing. It's not so precious. I'm but, you've, yeah. but you've made this beautiful record and you're out there playing for fans. Do you feel, let's just do it like a, a quick temperature check. How do you feel about your place in this artistic business landscape right now? Are you, are you optimistic? Are you feeling good about your well, career? Well, I'm at the of two complete minds. Um, there's the. When I try to think about my place, 
it, it changes every single day. And, and sometimes I'm like, I've got it made. And other times I'm like, I'm fucked. You know, like it really changes from five minutes spans. But I'm also trying to recognize that it's not my job to think about that shit. It actually literally is my job, but it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't help me necessarily. Right. You know what I mean? Like I'm not like doing myself or the fans or anybody any favors by like stressing about my Kelly Blue Book rating. So like I, most of the time I try to forget about that. As far as the standpoint of like how I feel artistically, I feel like my like life got saved. You know, like I haven't uh, stood on stage and not wanted to get off stage and felt like I'm in a warm bubble of friendship and music and, um, you know, warmth. Like, I haven't felt that since 2003 or something like that. And I um, I feel like I'm making art that uh, is, like, has the best chance of lasting. Um, and... Uh, and I don't. And I actually think it's it's not even about whether it's good art or bad art. It's just like something about it feels really like alive to me. So that aspect is just what I try to focus on. And when I try to think too much about like what is like what is it going to fetch at the market, then I start to get like I start to actually get super removed from the attitude that made the art good or, or made the art alive in the first place. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to like not do that. Well, thank you for bringing the bubble. Oh, over yeah. here to us. Thanks for joining the Kelly Blue Book pod. It's <laughs> <laughs> got a little awkward, but... Uh, Greenwald and I will be back on Thursday. We'll talk a little bit more about Atlanta and Luke Cage. Yep. And whatever else comes to mind. Uh, until then, thanks for listening. Great job, Ransky. Thanks again to Falling Water for sponsoring us today. We think that each we each dream our own dreams, right? But what if someone could walk out of their dream and into yours? What if they could use your dreams against you without you ever knowing? On October 13th, the producers of Walking Dead and Homeland present Falling Water, a new original drama on USA Network where the battle for your dreams is real and happens while you sleep because those who can control dreams can control the world. Falling Water, a new series, Thursday, October 13th, 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Work.